Let's take our Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14. We're coming toward the end of our series that we've called Taking New Ground, and I hope this has been an encouragement to you as we've learned more about this really important time in biblical history, Uh, and as we've seen the Lord's leading and calling on our lives, I think the Lord, uh, believe this very strongly, that the Lord has impressed on our hearts the need for a deeper faith, for obedience that is uh, unwavering, and for consecration. We saw that word a couple times uh, as we've studied consecration, setting yourself apart for holiness. And that is especially important, faith, obedience, consecration is important as we fulfill the great commission that God's given to us, as we share the gospel throughout the world, and as we make disciples. And that's really what we're doing this week. We're doing the initial stages of the great commission. We're going to go into the world, our neighborhood, we're going to speak truth, we're going to speak the gospel if God gives us the opportunity, we're going to share Christ, and we're going to tell other people, and the goal is that they will come here, that they'll come to faith if they don't already know the Lord, and we'll disciple them, okay? That's just a fulfillment of Matthew 28. So, great opportunity to do that. Now, the book of Joshua has showed that the Lord is really looking for people who will serve Him with holy integrity and serve Him with unwavering faithfulness because we love Him and because we are fully invested, and I pray we are individually and as a church, that we're fully invested in the plan of God. Now, among the Jews, as you go from uh, the departure from Egypt in Exodus 13, all the way up here to the promised land, Joshua 14, 40 years later, four books later, as we look at the Jewish nation from Exodus 13 to Joshua 14, there are very, 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 very few people that fit that description of unwavering faith, committed obedience, consecration of their lives. In fact, there are really only a few. And it would seem like out of millions of people that departed Egypt and then millions more that were born in the desert, that there would have been more than a couple people that that really were faithful to the Lord. But even Moses got angry. Even Moses got frustrated and disobeyed the word of the Lord and didn't get into the promised land. So as we come down to it, from Exodus 13 to Joshua 14, there were only really two men out of millions of people. There were only two men who were faithful throughout. Now one of them is Joshua. The book is named for him. He was the faithful leader. He was prominent. He guided Israel once Moses died and took them into the promised land and was faithful to the Lord. Highly regarded in biblical history. Everybody knows the name Joshua. But there was a second man that is a little bit more underrated. And he doesn't have a book named after him. He was not really prominent. In fact, I counted, there are only ten times that the Holy Spirit mentions Caleb between Egypt and Joshua 14. Ten times. Joshua's prominent all throughout. Moses mentors him and brings him up and passes the mantle to him. And Joshua leads them across and everybody knows Joshua. But but Caleb was just as faithful. And it's interesting because Joshua chapter 14 takes time to talk about Caleb. And if you uh, look at, uh, and I don't want you to turn now, but just write it down, Numbers 14.24. In Numbers 14.24, there are two statements that are used to describe Caleb. And the statements are these, But my servant Caleb 
because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, you can see this on the screen, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants will take possession of it. Now look at those two phrases that are in red. Because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully. Now we're going to see the promises that are in the second half of that verse. Uh, We're going to study how those are fulfilled in a couple of minutes. But I want you to just look at those two descriptions. It says, first of all, that Caleb had a different spirit. Now, this is said both because he did not align with the other spies and the other people who were rebellious, but also because Caleb was consecrated and he was sensitive to the Lord like few other people. In other words, Caleb was not typical. Caleb was not your average guy who who just kind of went along with everything else. He didn't look like anybody else. He didn't think like anybody else. He didn't act like anybody else because he was so committed to the Lord that everything about him was distinctive. The Spirit says his heart is mine. His heart is the Lord's. He's sold out. He's different. His spirit, Caleb's spirit, is different. What a description. How many would like to be described as having a different spirit? I want, I want, when I die someday, I want people to be able to say about me, not because of Paul Rhodes, but because of the Lord, that, that Paul Rhodes had a different spirit. There was something unique about him. There was something distinctive, and, and, and he stood out. Now, please hear my heart. I'm not saying, like, oh, wow, look at it. I'm saying that there was, there was the spirit of God that was present. That should be true of every believer. And often I think we get a little bit nervous about that. I don't want to be too passionate. I don't want to be too zealous. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to look even too spiritual because culture really criticizes that, mocks that, and, you know, I kind of want to fit in. I mean, I'll, I'll be a believer and I'll be strong in my faith, but I don't really want to stand out. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were excited and humbled to be seen as having a different spirit? And then look at the second phrase. He's followed me fully. The Lord says this about him four times in those ten verses. He keeps saying it over and over. Caleb has followed me fully. In fact, it's almost like it's part of his name. Caleb who followed God fully. What a phrase. What a great description. Another one I'd like to have. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But, but Jake, uh, Caleb did not just have these descriptions going for him. There was something else that God was doing in his life. And the Lord had promised right here in Numbers 14 that he would be one of only two who would go from Egypt all the way into the promised land and that his descendants would be given possession of it. So if you just glance back, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, what's going on there? We're going to pass over those this morning. The the land is being divided by tribe as God had told Moses to divide it. And they're doing that, and, and every tribe's getting its own different area of, of the land of Canaan. But now, as they're doing this, Caleb comes to Joshua in chapter 14, and he's holding an IOU from the Lord in his hand. So start in verse 6, Joshua 14, 6, and let's read about 10 verses here. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. 
Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years, from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I'm 85 years old today. Verse 11, I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now, for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you've heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I'll drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jehunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron with Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Now Caleb's claim of possession on the mountains of Hebron are his personal and his family possession because Moses had promised him 45 years before when they were still in the desert in Deuteronomy 1. He said, when we get to the promised land, because you've been faithful, because you've been loyal, because there's been fidelity in your life, you are going to have a certain area of the promised land. Now think about how Caleb could have approached this. He could have become arrogant well, when we go in, you know, I'm only one of two that came from Egypt. You know, I'm pretty special. I'm pretty, pretty big deal here. None of you came from Egypt. Oh, your forefathers rebelled. And, you know, but I'm here, and did you know I get a special inheritance? Like, I get a special portion of the land. It's pretty cool. Think about how arrogant he could have been. Or think about how he could have used his privilege and said, well, you know, I, I, I'm really, I'm really kind of special and everybody should listen to me. Or he could have gone to Joshua with a real arrogant attitude and said, you know, I, I've been faithful and I know God promised me part of the land, but I think I should really get more. And you, you know what? You and I are friends. We're the only two that were good. Joshua, come on. You get to be leader. I haven't gotten much. Nobody really pays attention to me. So I'd like some extra land. You know, how we approach situations in which we have an advantage says a lot about our character. That can apply to, to situations like uh, an argument in our marriage, when we know we're right, when we have the upper hand. How do we treat our spouse in that conversation? Do we kind of get condescending, like, ah, see, told you so, you were wrong. Yeah, you've done it. You have. I have too. How do we act toward our kids? We're the parent, you're the kid. I'm the parent. I've said that before. I think I said it this week. I'm the parent, you're the kid. This is how it works. I have the upper hand. I have the advantage. You listen to me. Or how do we deal with business relationships where, where we have an advantage, where, where there's some kind of situation where, where we're over it? Do we become at that point kind of, kind of arrogant and condescending and controlling? Or are we humble and wise and sacrificial? Trials are an opportunity for us to have our faith stretched. But many times it's more difficult when we're having success because success can breed the wrong attitude because pride can jump up. 
Now, Caleb and Joshua have a long-time friendship. They go way back. They were 45 years before. It's a long time. 45 years before they had gone into the land, and they had spied, and they had been the ones that were faithful, and everybody else doubted. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but now they have this relationship, and he's able to come in, and, and he says, look, I'm coming with other members of my tribe because I don't want this to seem like some kind of little side deal between you and me, and I don't want people to think I have some kind of advantage even though we go way back. I want the focus to be on the Lord. So you know, look at the text, you know what God spoke to you and me. You remember it. The Lord gave us a word, and it was based on Moses' promise that, that I was going to have this land because you and I, he's not bragging here, you and I were only two that gave a good report. The other ten panicked. They got in there, they looked at the material, they were scared, they were overwhelmed, they were full of doubt, and, and Israel was told by God, we can conquer this land, this land's yours, go and take it, and yet they didn't want to do that. God had promised it to us. But they didn't believe. And even though God miraculously brought us out of Egypt, took us through the Red Sea, gave us manna and quail and water, I mean, it was spectacular, Joshua. They should have believed, but they didn't. But notice what Caleb's perspective was. Look back at verse 7. He says, when we came back, I brought the word that God had put in my heart. This wasn't bragging. Well, you know, I, I knew better. I'm very analytical and very, I saw the potential of this and nobody else did. And, you know, it's so easy, guys, for pride to creep in, right? Oh, I, we saw it, Joshua. Come on, you and me, we saw it. Now, he doesn't have any of that. He just says, listen, the Lord gave us insight. We saw, and it wasn't because we were special. It's because we just looked at the word of God, and God had said, it's your land. So we just believed. It wasn't like there was anything strategic about it. We just knew because God had said. And you see that, these verses, look at 7, 8, and 9. We trusted in the covenant of the Lord, and we followed the Lord fully. And there was a promise with the Lord as a reward for our faithfulness. Look at those last couple, verses 8 and 9. He says, I followed the Lord fully. I followed the Lord, my God, fully. The word followed there shows that the Lord is leading and his servant is willingly trusting him and being obedient. Obedience is an interesting thing. We can do it part way. We can obey. Oh yes, okay, the word of God, I need to obey this. But when it comes time to a full surrender of our will, well, I have some objections and there might be some restrictions because, you know, I kind of don't want to be hindered and, and, and kind of restrained. So, so let me put some guidelines here. And then when God leads us in a certain way, like Israel, we start to complain. Oh, I'll obey, but I'm not happy about it. Have you ever uttered that sentence? Oh, I'll do it. I know I'm supposed to, but I'm not really happy about it. Paul says... I've learned to be content in what? All things. Whether abounding or abased. The secret of the Christian walk, I'm, I'm convinced, is in Philippians 4.11. I've learned to be content. 
Not happy, giddy, ah! No, come on, you can't live like that. That's just weird. And not always, oh, that's not of the Lord. Content. Why content? Because my mind's filled with what's pure and holy and right. And because I'm taking all things to the Lord with thanksgiving and making my requests known. And I'm going to trust the Lord and I'm going to have the mindset of Christ. Philippians is an incredible book. I'm going to have the mindset of Christ who, who thought it joy to go to the cross. So how do I learn to be content? I trust, I surrender, I pray, and I fill my mind with the right things. And I know that God will supply all my need. That's where Joshua was. That's where Caleb was. So after the disaster in the desert, where the people doubted and rebelled and complained and tried to have a coup d'etat on Moses and where, where everybody was frustrated, here's Caleb, and Caleb's just walking on, not doubting, not frustrated, not irritated, even when God says to them, because you didn't believe you're going to wander 40 years. You don't see Caleb over in the corner going, are you kidding me, you guys? Seriously. I, we came back with the right report. What's wrong with you? What's wrong? God, why are you doing this to me? I got to wander 40 years with these guys? I could use a stronger word, but I won't. These people have always been faithless. Why am I stuck with them? I don't want to wander. Why can't you let Joshua and me go to the promised land now and let these guys wander around in circles? You never see that with Caleb. He just keeps walking day after day, full of faith, armed with the promise, knowing someday we're going to go in and I'm going to go to Joshua and say, I got an IOU. That kind of life requires a long-standing faith. Imagine if Joshua and Caleb had given in to the peer pressure and the fear and the compromise. I mean, nobody's believing God, let alone submitting to his will and his leading. whole thing's a complete failure. Millions of people just wailing, doubting, crying. We can't believe we're out here. We want to go back. Oh, what's going on? Why doesn't God care for us? And they go spy the land, and the people still don't believe. So what kept them going? What, what kept Caleb walking day after day after day after day after day? Watching people die every day. Watching people complain every day. For 40 years, he kept walking. How do we apply this to our lives? What keeps us going? What keeps you steady as you see culture eroding? What keeps you steady as you go through trial? What keeps you steady when God doesn't answer your prayers in the timing that you're looking for? What keeps you going? You know, just in this series alone, we've talked about fear and doubt and peer pressure and having to trust what's unseen and personal sacrifice and submitting to the Lord's plans even when they're unusual and dealing with defeat and the presence of sin and confusion and spiritual warfare. I mean, that's a lot just in 13 chapters. They dealt with all of it. The devil threw everything he could at them. And here's Caleb, faithful every day. Faithful every day. Why should we do that? And how do we do it? 
What motivates us every day? What pushes us forward with powerful, resilient faith? You know, I was listening to Ronald Reagan's first inaugural address this week. Part of it was on uh, social media, and I clicked on it. I forgot how great a speaker Reagan was. Guy was unbelievable. And in his first inaugural address, 1981, he talked about a soldier named Martin Treptow. Martin Treptow fought and died in France in World War I. And I want to play two minutes of this speech in which he mentions Martin Treptow and what he wrote in his diary because there's one phrase that stuck me as being so relevant to our text this morning. So would you just listen for two minutes to this video? When there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. I know Martin Treptow may not have meant it the way we're going to interpret this morning, but he wrote a brilliant explanation of the Christian life. Because that last phrase that we heard that Reagan spoke about, Martin Treptow wrote, I will do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depends on me alone. If every Christian approached their faith and ministry that way, if every church approached their mission that way, I will do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depends on me alone. If every Christian, every church did that, we would represent Christ and advance his gospel so effectively. Faithfulness. A guy who was killed carrying a message from one battalion to another, just, just a courier, just shot as he's going from line to line in the middle of the battle of World War I, who gets killed. Nobody would know his name except for this diary in which he makes this pledge and says, the whole purpose of me being here is that it depends on me. As we go out into the neighborhoods, 
Think of that. The whole purpose of this mission depends on me. As you approach walking faithfully to the Lord, well, what's my motivation, Paul? What, how do I keep going? Because I'm in trial, or I'm in crisis, or it's difficult, or people mock me. Yeah, but the whole mission depends on you. The whole mission depends on me. The whole mission depends on this church. That's how Caleb lived. Look back at the text. That allowed him to enjoy the blessing of a good reputation. You know, I'm sure I've said it before, but faithfulness is highly underrated. Faithfulness is highly underrated. For the ten other spies, there was always a stigma around their lives. Not only of doubting, but as Caleb says in verse 8, of always causing the people to doubt so their hearts melted with fear. Now we've seen that phrase a couple times in this book. When the people trusted the Lord, when they walked with the Lord, when they followed the Lord's plan, what did it say? Their enemies, their hearts melted with fear. Remember Rahab? They go talk to her. She's like, we've already lost the battle. It's done because all the kings have heard what happened in Egypt. They know God's with you and and we're intimidated. Our hearts have melted with fear. So as long as the people walk with the Lord, that was the case. But now Caleb says, here's what happened when the ten spies went in. When they gave that bad report, our hearts melted with fear. See, when you don't walk with the Lord, when you don't trust the Lord, when you're not giving to the Lord, when I don't do that, not just you, but me too, when we don't trust the Lord, guess what happens? We're full of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So if you love the Lord and you know His love and you trust in that, you will not be engrossed with fear. But when you get your eyes off of Christ, guess what? The devil, he just goes after you. He just gives you fear. Self-sufficiency is a way of thinking as much as an action. And it involves refusing. I know that's a strong word, but it's an accurate word. It involves refusing to trust the Lord and His Word and concluding that our solution is the only right way. For Israel, they did that over and over, and their solution was fear and panic and hesitation. You know, we don't want to hear this next part, but I've got to say it because the Lord wants me to say it. Fear, worry, and anxiety are always rooted in self. And we have to be broken of self every single day. It is a significant battle. I know this is very delicate territory. I've probably offended a couple people already. But listen, even though many of us struggle with this, we have to be confident and certain that the Lord can deliver us from this. And that involves fully surrendering every single day. And let me tell you where this starts. It starts with our minds. So I want to ask you a couple questions this morning. What are you taking into your mind? I want to encourage each of us this week. uh, This is a hard assignment. I'm going to give it to you anyway. I want each of us to take a personal inventory. I want you to start by trying to assess last week to give yourself a, a, an initial foundation so you're not uh, adapting your behavior this week for the sake of the experiment. But, but a thorough personal inventory. And I want us to analyze three things. Okay? They're going to be up on the screen. First of all, what am I looking at? What am I looking at? TV, internet, Social media, reading, study. What am I looking at? 
and I want you to rate this. I want you to do a thorough inventory. What did I look at this week? You can even go back through your Google, uh, through your, your history. Look at all the websites. What did I look at this week? How much time did I spend on social media? I want you to rate what you looked at. Develop a list. One to ten. One being flat out evil and ten being pure as the driven snow. What did I look at this week? And then, as much as you can, how much time did I spend doing that? Now, your history will help you with that just on the internet. But how much time do we spend on social media this week? The average person touches their phone. Jacob, you've been the number 12,000? Is that right? How much? The average person touches their phone 2,500 times in a day. Now, if you're like me and you touch it seven or 800, that means there are other people that are touching it 5,000. The average person touches their phone 2,500 times a day. The average person touches another person six times a day. Is it any wonder our culture is detached? How much time did you spend scrolling, looking, searching, spending time, playing games, doing whatever, watching TV, being mindless? I want you to try to track that. And this week, track it. How much time? Second, what am I listening to? What am I listening to? Now, it may, be, it may be positive in your mind, but it may be affecting your mind. So talk radio, music, sermons, score it. What's been holy, what's been evil? How much time did I spend listening to something? Third, what am I allowing to exist in my mind? What am I allowing to exist in my mind? Temptation, impurity, doubt, worry, fear, thoughts of condemnation. I'm no good. Nobody likes me. That's thoughts of condemnation. As well as prayers, holy thoughts, edifying thoughts. Score it. How much did you allow it to exist in your mind? I was watching a TV show the other day, and I think this was right, but they said you spend, uh, I think it was 100 times more thinking about a thought than verbalizing it. So if you have thoughts of, I'm horrible, I'm nothing, God hates me, everybody hates me, I have no friends, if you verbalize that 10 times, you're thinking it 100 times more during the day. What are we allowing to persist in our mind, now I know you're like, well, that's a cool experiment, but that's way too cumbersome and necessary. No, it's not, because until we honestly examine what we're allowing into our minds and what stays there, we cannot get to the reality of our self-centered issues. And my guess is, if we actually do this, we are going to be frightened. And I hope we're frightened because it needs to change our behavior. See, the power of Caleb's life was that he had been faithful and consistent. Write those words down if you're taking notes. Faithful and consistent. I bet all those producers and all those actors and all those politicians and the increasing plethora of people who are now being accused of sexual assault and misconduct, I bet all those people now wish they had been faithful to morality all these years. But all these people now whose careers are done, I mean, they may even go to jail. Who knows? I bet they're thinking this morning, I wish I had done the right thing. Caleb was the opposite of those people. 
He didn't self-promote. In fact, even though he mentions in the verses that he was faithful, he talks about the Lord far more times. He mentions the Lord nine times in seven verses. Over and over, he refers to Moses and God's promises and the Lord's help. And he uses this as a teaching moment that when multiple generations had failed the Lord, that he was still standing. And you know what? 45 years later, I'm just as strong. I'm just as confident. I love the Lord just as much. I'm blessed by the Lord just as much. In fact, we can go to battle right now. I'm 85, but don't discount me. I'm just like I was when I was 40. That's not because he ate vegetables. That's because he followed the Lord. And God kept his promises. Aren't you glad the Lord keeps his promises and they don't fade away? How many people will fail us? How many people will we fail this week by not keeping our promise? Oh, yeah, I said I was going to do that. I'm sorry. I just, I, I got busy. So I should have, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know. We get so irritated. Well, you promised you'd do that. You didn't do it. I'm all upset now. 45 years, the Lord never forgot Caleb. And Caleb walks in at 85. I like to think that it's his birthday because he says, I'm 85 today, so let's call it his birthday. And he walks in. Joshua, you remember? Remember that discussion, Kadesh Barnea? Remember what God said to us? I'm calling it in. Give me the land. I want my mountains. See, Caleb had proven that the Lord could rely on him. We mentioned this a couple months ago. Does the Lord know he can rely on us? Are you and I reliable to the Lord? Does he know he can count on us at any time to be full of faith and to be faithful? When I need somebody, oh, there's Rhodes. Oh, there's, put your name in the sentence. Oh, when I know push comes to shove and I need somebody to be faithful, there they are right there. Everybody else failing me, but there they are right there. That's my faithful servant. And the place the Lord gave to Caleb was no accident. Hebron was and still is a very significant city to the Lord. Even today, the Jews venerate the city of Hebron for its association with Abraham. It's considered to be the second holiest city after Jerusalem. Now, Hebron uh, is, is located about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It's built on several hills which run north to south. And even the word Hebron is derived from the Hebrew word for friend. Well, friend was the word that God used for Abraham. Wouldn't you like to be described as the friend of God? Abraham's my friend. Hebron was a special place. Hebron now is one of the oldest occupied cities in the whole world. It's the site of the oldest Jewish community. Now it's on the West Bank. Now there are like 400 Jews in Hebron because it's controlled by the Palestinians. But Genesis tells us that Abraham purchased a field in Hebron as a burial place for his wife, Sarah. And Christian tradition says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the big three, right? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah, their wives, they're all buried in Hebron. 
David was anointed king of Israel in Hebron. He reigned there for seven years. The Jews were in Hebron up until 1929, and then war was so constant that they got kicked out. But in the Seven Days War, in a six-day war in 1967, they claimed it back. So Hebron is a very, very important city for the Jews. Look at the text. It was Caleb's reward for his faithfulness. God specifically said, those hills, Hebron, where I first gave the covenant to Abraham, where all of this started, and I told Abraham, you're going to have a land, and I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to bless you. This is all going to happen, Abraham, Genesis 12. Now, all the way up to Joshua 14, Caleb says, that's my place. The place called friend. The place where God put his special hand on it. This is important. And you know what? I've been in the background, but I've been faithful. And I want my mountains. It's a beautiful picture. But he had to wait 45 years for it. He had to wait and be patient for the Lord to give him his blessing. But let me tell you, the land was not the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing was that his reputation was sterling and that God put his hand on him. You know, when we're faithful, let me finish, God rewards it. It's not why we do it. There was a whole movement in the 80s. Well, I serve God because they get rewards. Rewards, everybody remember that? Rewards, about rewards. It was the 80s. You know the 80s, right? Come on, it was all about getting all about money. So Christianity followed it. Well, okay, we serve the Lord because when we get to heaven, we'll get a bunch of rewards. I'm sorry, that's not why you serve Jesus Christ. The rewards are an add-on, and the Bible says when we get our crowns, we're just going to throw them at Jesus' feet. I'm not going to walk around heaven wearing 46 crowns. (laughs) I'm balanced, though. I got got my 46 crowns. Nope, the moment I see Jesus, I'm going to put them at his feet and say, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't deserve one of these. Not one. So we don't serve the Lord for rewards, but when we're faithful, here's what God does. He rewards us. And there are blessings that he's waiting to pour out on your life and on my life and on this church as a reward for our faithfulness. Now, just like Caleb, we may already know what they are based on the promises of God. Like, when you call, I'll answer. And you will receive power. And if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. Those are promises that are sure. We may also have an idea of what those blessings could be based on what we've heard impressed on our heart from the Holy Spirit when we've prayed with strong faith, things like the restoration of a marriage or a child coming back to the Lord or physical healing, or we may have no clue what the Lord's ready to do. But we know that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So maybe for you ahead, there's an avenue of ministry, or maybe there's a mission field waiting for you, or maybe God's going to bless you with another child, or maybe you're going to be used to lead hundreds of people to Jesus Christ. Maybe this church is going to explode in its influence in this area for the sake of Christ. I don't know what it is, but you know what? God can do a miracle, right? So are we going to trust him? Those blessings, listen now, they might be delayed. I'd like right now for this church 
to be a place of tremendous spiritual influence. I'd like to see 100 people every week get saved right here. I'd like to baptize hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I'd like to see people being discipled. I'd like to see kids growing in Christ. Not because Harbor Rock Tabernacle now is a brand and everybody knows it. Heaven forbid that ever happened. If I ever allow that to happen, you fire me. But I'm telling you, that's what I'd like. Because I'd love to see the name of Christ be so prominent in this city and in this region and in this state. I'd love to see it. But you know what? That blessing, if it's going to come someday, it's being delayed. So we need to have a long range of view in mind. See, one of the mistakes that our culture makes is the lack of long-term thinking and planning. We especially see it in terms of financial planning. We see it in terms of the effects of the family being broken up uh, by, by divorce and by kids wandering away because they're not taught discipline and not taught biblical values. But even more so, our culture is blinded in terms of thinking and planning for eternity. I was thinking about that this week, and I may have told you the story in seven years, so if I have, please forgive me. But I was thinking this week about a conversation I had with a cab driver in London in 1992. I was sitting in the back of a cab. We were on a short-term mission trip. Excuse me, 1993. We were on a short-term mission trip in London. We were going into the street every day and conducting surveys and talking to people. 38 different countries, 42 different states. We just engaged people for 8, 10 hours a day, asking them about their opinion about God and talking to them about Jesus. It was a beautiful experience. But I will never forget when I was driving in a cab, riding in a cab, I can tell you exactly when, where I was. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon. I was on the northern side of Hyde Park. I can even picture it right now, 37 years, 34 years later. 24 years later, excuse me, I'm having trouble with my math today. 24 years later, this is the scene, that's Hyde Park in London. And I was in one of those cabs. And I'm sitting in the back, middle of the afternoon, watching the cabbie turn the corner. I can remember, I could take you to the spot right now. And I said to the cab driver, what do you think about God? What do you think about eternity? What do you, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And I will never forget, to this moment, I will never forget what he said. He said, I don't have time to think about it. And I thought to myself, you drive a cab all day. <laughs> and it was funny, but it was ironic. All you do is sit. All you do is have time to think. And you're telling me, with eternity, you don't have time to think about it. And my heart broke right there. So many people do not have a long-term thought. They, They don't see it. Eternity doesn't matter. Even if they believe in it, they don't care. Look at it one more time and we're going to pray. Caleb thought about eternity. And because of that, he is a powerful example of someone who remained faithful to the Lord instead of becoming angry and bitter and falling away. When our family was down in Chicago Tabernacle back in August, my friend Pastor Al Toledo said, you can become bitter or you can become better. Caleb did not allow bitterness 
to creep in. He wasn't dictated by his circumstances. He was driven by his commitment to the Lord. And the Lord had blessed him at 40, wandering for 40 years, and now at 85. His reputation is strong. His servanthood is strong. His example is strong. His witness is strong. And God is using him in amazing ways. And now he gets the blessing of God's hand. Are you and I patient? Listen now. Are you and I patient to receive what we don't deserve in the first place? See, this is not just about walking by faith. It's about staying faithful until our salvation is fully realized in heaven. It is so rare, increasingly so, sadly so, to find believers who finish strong. In the Bible, think of the minefield of people who failed at the end. Saul and Samuel, excuse me, and Solomon and Samson. Think about the rich young ruler who left Jesus and went away sad because he didn't want to give a full sacrifice. Think about the verse that says many in the crowd left Jesus because it was too much. He demanded too much. All the people that left Paul as he's sitting in jail, cold, shivering, nothing to read, about to have his head cut off, and he writes to Timothy and says, please come visit me, just bring my coat, bring me something to read, and everybody's left me. Even you, Timothy, my protege, you want to quit. I'm sitting in a cell writing letters of encouragement to churches. Everybody failed. I think about my dad's generation. So many powerful, influential people for the cause of Christ and the gospel. And you know what? Now they're dying off. And my question is, who's going to take their place? Christian leaders right now, many of them, not all, so many worried about marketing and branding and building their own little kingdom rather than the gospel. When you think of Christian leaders, are they known for their powerful witness or their latest book and project? Is it more about Christ or more about being multi-site with members and social media followers and, and, and being known? See, Christ showed us and Caleb sets a standard for us. It's finished with this. His spirit was different. His spirit was different because he followed the Lord fully. Come on, believer, that should describe you and me. Church, that should describe us. And it starts with just being faithful.